1: Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Children who were forced to learn from home or had their schooling disrupted during the COVID pandemic haven't fallen as far behind as feared, according to new NAPLAN data released today. Across Australia, writing skills are improving, but it's not all good news. More Year 9 boys than ever are failing to reach the national minimum standard for reading. National Education reporter Gabriella Marchant has more.
2: Mum, Joanne O'Mara, remembers overhearing her son Alistair attend his high school lessons via Zoom during the months of Melbourne's multiple lockdowns. I could actually hear everything that was occurring in
3: the classroom all the time. And I suppose I was just really impressed with the way that the teachers ran all of the classes. They did
2: a check-in with all the kids. They were connecting with them, telling them about what they were doing at home. She says even his woodwork teacher went the extra mile to engage students. He sort of did this lesson where he said, look, paper is made of cellulose.
3: It's a type of wood. And then he got them to do all the design activities. I think they
2: were meant to build a cabinet through designing paper planes and the kids did videos of them. Now this year's NAPLAN data shows that hard work paid off. The extended lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales haven't had the devastating academic impact many had feared. Across Australia, writing skills are improving, reversing a longer term trend, while reading scores are also increasing for primary school students. But it's not all good news. The Grattan Institute's education program director, Jordana Hunter, says more Year 9 boys than ever failed to meet the national minimum standard for reading.
3: Traditionally, boys haven't performed as well as girls, uh, but that trend seems to be becoming more pronounced. And the Year 9 boys look like they're around a year's worth of learning behind Year 9 girls. She's also concerned about numeracy. In all different states and territories and across different uh, year levels, those numeracy results are quite a bit down where they were in uh, those pre-pandemic years. It's hard to tell whether or not that's a direct result of the pandemic. It's possible that it's a mix of the rigour of the curriculum that's being taught, the professional
2: confidence that teachers have. This year's test also had the fewest ever participants, something the curriculum authorities blamed on the pandemic and natural disasters. Dr Hunter says turning the trend around is imperative. This has to be a priority
3: for governments. It's really critical that state and territory governments do what they can to encourage those high participation rates so that we can have confidence in the NAPLAN data set.
2: Another imperative is closing the gap between students whose parents have different levels of education. The
3: size of that gap in terms of equivalent years of learning more than doubles by the time students reach Year 9. So in the sixties between Year 3 and Year 9, rather than us closing that gap, that gap gets a lot wider.
1: The Grattan Institute's Dr Jordana Hunter ending that report from Gabriella Marchant. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, joins me now. Good morning, welcome. Were you surprised... Good morning, Sabra. Were you surprised by these results?
4: Well, to be honest, they're better than I expected. Uh, these are the first NAPLAN results since those big lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria last year and uh, across most of the categories the results are stable they're similar to what we saw in 2019 before COVID. that's it that's a tribute to the incredible work of teachers and parents and students out there but uh, in that story gabriella did make the point that we're we're seeing a trend down uh, in year nine students particularly boys but we're seeing it in girls as well Now, that might be because of COVID. We've certainly seen a trend down over the last couple of years there. NAPLAN tells us what's happening, but it doesn't tell us why. And I think we need to drill down into that.
1: Just on the year nine results, though, uh, it was an interesting result for Western Australia. It it is outperforming other states. Um, Year 10 students, uh, people who want to sit beyond year nine have to sit an extra exam if they want to go on to year 12. Is that a lesson perhaps for other states?
4: Well, I, I asked this question of the team that put NAPLAN together, and they told me that in WA, your results in NAPLAN for Year 9 count towards qualifications in Year 10, Year 11 and 12. And so in, in WA, you, you tend to see students studying harder for NAPLAN because it counts, whereas in other jurisdictions, students are not encouraged to prepare. So that might, may account for it, uh, but that's only one of the reasons, I suspect, why we're seeing a difference there.
1: Do you still think that there is value in holding these NAPLAN tests? The education union has previously said that the tests aren't valuable anymore and that they should go. What do you think?
4: Well, NAPLAN doesn't tell us everything. Uh, I think it's important to make that point. You know, one of the things that we know has happened over the last few years is that the mental health and the well-being of young people has been smashed by COVID. NAPLAN doesn't measure that. It's not intended to measure that, but it does help us to better understand uh, you know what's happening in our schools and how our students are performing. And there is some good news here, Sabra. If you have a look at the reading skills of primary school students, primary school students are, on average, a year ahead of primary school students' reading capability 14 years ago. Now, that's something that we should be celebrating. We see similar uh, similar results when it comes to maths at primary school as well. What I'm concerned about, I guess, are two things. One, that we don't see that carry on into high school. you know that the, the reading and math skills of high school students is about the same as it was 14 years ago. An even bigger concern for me is that the gap between the reading skills and the math skills of children from poor backgrounds and children from wealthier backgrounds is getting bigger.
1: Okay you're the product of a public education. Labor has promised to ensure that every public school receives 100% of their schooling resource standard, which allows for more funding for poorer students and those from non-English speaking backgrounds. Is that a priority for you in these financially constrained times?
4: Well, we committed, as you said, Sabra, at the last election to making sure that all schools were on a pathway to getting their full and fair funding. At the moment, Non-government schools are tracking downwards towards that 100% level by the end of the decade. Government schools are tracking upwards, but on current trajectory won't get to that 100%. There's about a 5% gap. And so the National Schooling Resource Agreement that will kick off next year will be focused on who pays to get to that 100% level. Uh, and what does it get spent on? Uh, and what I'm particularly concerned about is making sure that we don't see that gap between children from poorer backgrounds and children from wealthier backgrounds getting bigger. It is at the moment. I think we need to zero in on that and look at what we can do using the funding we've got, make sure we target it better to help those children.
1: Uh, Using the funding you got then, does does this mean redistribution as Dr Ken Boston, a former education chief, suggests that some uh, private schools are getting way more than they need?
4: Well, private school funding is on a trajectory down to that 100% level now. What we've got to do is get public schools up to that 100% level as well. But we've also got to make sure that in all of the funding that we provide to schools, that we're making sure that all children benefit from that. Now, As I mentioned before, we've seen some pretty terrific results when it comes to primary school. The reading skills of primary school students is about a year ahead of what it was 14 years ago. That's a good thing. But we're not seeing the same growth when it comes to poor kids. So that tells me we need to target the funding that we deliver to schools to make sure that we're helping those children in particular.
1: Okay, you're grappling with some big issues, a big shortage in teachers. How can you fix that? You're meeting ministers next month.
4: You're right. Uh, we, we've got a, a massive shortage of teachers right across the country. This is a, a problem 10 years in the making. We're not going to fix it in an instant. It's going to take years to fix. Part of the problem, Sabor, is not enough young people are enrolling in teaching when they finish school. We've seen a drop over the last 10 years of about 16% in the number of students going into uni to learn teaching. Not enough young people at university are completing their teaching degrees. It's something like only 50% of students who are studying teaching at university who complete their degree and the average at university for other degrees is about 70%. And then we're seeing a lot of young teachers in particular leave the profession early. This is a horrifying statistic but something like 30 to 50% of teachers in their first second or third year leave the profession. Uh, and you've got mid-career teachers, teachers in the prime of their career that are walking out on teaching as well feeling burnt out. So Not enough going in, not enough completing their degrees, too many teachers leaving the profession they love early, and that all comes together to create a teacher shortage crisis.
1: Jason Clare, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about this. Thank you for joining AM.
4: Thanks very much, Sabra.
1: There are still no clear answers about what caused a weekend stampede in the South Korean capital that killed more than 150 people who were celebrating Halloween. The Department of Foreign Affairs says it's been told about the death of one Australian and it's also assisting a number of other Australians caught up in the event. North Asia correspondent James Oten reports from Seoul.
5: The morning after the tragedy, families were desperately looking for answers about their missing loved ones. What many learned was tragic. (laughs) By Sunday night, that grief was on full display near the site of the tragedy. Mourners came to a subway station nearby to lay flowers and other tributes. This man explained he was caught up in the crush. He can't remember how, but he says it took two hours to finally get out to freedom. Another bystander explained she was caught up in the commotion, but instead of being pushed into the laneway where many died, she was pushed in another direction. There are plenty of other what-if moments.
2: I have so many mixed feelings now. What if I came here one or two hours earlier, as I originally planned to? Then I
1: could
5: have died. Questions about the event continue to mount, but one crucial one is why the crowds were allowed to gather in such large numbers for so many hours. One shopkeeper, AM, spoke with, said he could barely get to his bicycle when he closed his store more than two hours before the crowd crush. One bystander, Janelle Storey, described the scenes as frantic.
6: Ituron is famous for its crowds, and it's not unusual, but this was next level, shoulder to shoulder, front to back just shimmying along on those streets. No control about where you're going to move at times based on where the crowd pushes you.
5: It's already been revealed police did not expect such large numbers and had instead deployed extra officers to oversee a protest in central Seoul.
6: My friend said she saw one police officer in that crowd or somebody that was pushing us, that we were stuck in for a minute. She said she saw one person yelling and trying to help the crowd, but in that huge, huge mass of people, only one authority there trying to help us? Like, I didn't see him either.
5: Help did eventually arrive, just far too late. This is James Oten in Seoul, reporting for AM.
1: A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding in Somalia as the worst drought in four decades pushes hundreds of thousands to starvation. Climate change has intensified the disaster as crops fail and livestock die. Many people have been forced to flee their homes in search of food and water. Correspondent Tom Joyner reports from southern Somalia.
7: As the desert sun blazed overhead, Kajie Mayo focused on her feet moving beneath her. Days earlier, she and her four children had joined a convoy that left her village near Dinsur in southern Somalia. Their destination was the city of Baidoa, 150 kilometers northeast, where she'd heard of a camp for people like her, Somalis fleeing the drought.
3: We had to leave our home because of hunger. There's nowhere to work and earn.
7: One morning, she woke to find her daughter, Shukri, was dead. Villagers told her to bury the body so it didn't rot under the hot sun. Three days later, another child followed. There was no time to give a proper goodbye to either – Her other children were starving.
3: How could we have had a funeral? Why should we stand and wait? We were still so hungry.
7: Hundreds of thousands of Somalis have been pushed from their homes or driven to starvation. Livestock have perished and crops have failed in the country's worst drought in four decades. The most vulnerable are young children. In a small clinic in Dolo, a town on the Somali-Ethiopian border... Mothers arrive daily clutching starving children on the edge of death.
6: Our average admission before the drought was probably 50 children being admitted per month. Right now the average admission is anything between 150 to 200.
7: Pamela Wazonga is the clinic's head of nutrition. She says the vast majority of women who turn up at the clinic are displaced from their homes and live in makeshift camps on the edge of town. Sometimes, if they're unable to find food, Ms Wazonga sees the same women and children come again and again.
4: By the time they arrive here, they've walked for days, so they've nothing. And so it's really hard sometimes when we are providing all these services here, they still have to be discharged back home, which is really at the camp.
7: The UN warns the drought is so extreme, some areas will face a famine within a matter of weeks something that last happened a decade ago. We said in 2011, as a humanitarian community, this will never happen again, and it's now on our doorsteps. Paul Healy works for the Irish charity Trocaire. It's an apocalyptic scene. If the global community doesn't respond, we have on our shoulders hundreds of thousands of lost lives. We caused this by climate change. We should do something about it. Back at the camp, Kajiem Moilin Mayo and her children have little to do but sit in the shade and wait. Their hope has run out.
3: What an is it? I have no plans at all, apart from what I receive in aid. There's nothing that I have now.
7: This is Tom Joyner in Somalia, reporting for AM.
1: Uluru is one of Australia's most spectacular and well-known places, but few would be aware that it's also a scene of an active frontier violence. 90 years ago, an Anangu man was killed inside a cave at the rock. But his death and the removal of his body from the grave has been a story many have tried to keep quiet until now. Elias Kluwer reports.
0: It's an uncharacteristically rainy morning at Uluru. The rainwater runs down the rock into the famed Mutajulu waterhole. About 50 metres away, a very special ceremony is taking place. The remains of an Ungu man Yakun are returning to country after 90 years of being kept in a box in an Adelaide warehouse. It's the final chapter in a saga involving racism, violence, and a cover up. A few days before the ceremony, I met with author and historian Mark McKenna at a roadhouse 100 kilometres from Uluru. He's filling me in on how this story began back in 1934 with an outback cop named Bill McKinnon who was stationed in the tiny colonial outpost
6: that was Alice Springs. McKinnon sees himself as entering a mythology of central Australia that he wants to become a central figure in.
0: Investigating the murder of an Aboriginal station hand, Bill McKinnon found and arrested
6: Yakun and five other men. He then starts to immediately... Extract confessions from those six men. And there's evidence in McKinnon's journals of, of brutal intimidation. They are innocent. They are innocent men. But at the time, he believed that they were they were suspects, let's put it that way. The men managed to
0: flee, although Bill McKinnon and his trackers caught up with them within a few days, cornering Yakun who was hiding in a cave at Uluru. According to the policeman's diary, Yacoon threw a stone at him, so he shot and killed him. An inquiry was launched, but McKinnon was exonerated.
6: All of the men who, who were part of that inquiry were known to McKinnon. Um, I think that it was pretty difficult to think that that inquiry wasn't compromised in some ways. Yukun was buried at Uluru, but his
0: body was later exhumed and given to the University of Adelaide without his family knowing. Abraham Paulson is Yikun's closest living relative.
6: I was really sad. Sad, angry, and upset. Deeply sad when thinking
0: about the story. Historian Mark McKenna found crucial evidence that corroborated what the family had long believed in the diaries of Constable Bill McKinnon.
6: There in his own hand was the statement I fired to hit. So at that point, I knew that he had been lying to the Commonwealth Board of Inquiry in 1935.
0: This month, Professor Richard Logan from the University of Adelaide returned Joachim's remains to his family at the ceremony at the base of the rock.
6: On behalf of the university, I say sorry to Joachim's family and to all the families affected by these historical attitudes and practices.
0: In the crowd were Bill McKinnon's relatives, including nephew, Ross McKinnon.
6: I think the history that... Hasn't been told um, that that needs to be told, and if the people people that have, that have the links to that need to be brave enough to to to, to own that.
0: After the ceremony, Abraham Paulson offers this: "I'm happy, like he came and stand with us. Yeah, it's peace." A mystery solved and an act of reconciliation through truth telling.
1: Elias Kluwer there, and you can see more of his report on 7.30 tonight. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
2: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Why do big Australian companies keep getting hacked? Millions of us have had our private data stolen, opening us up to identity theft and fraud. Now criminals even have our medical records. Today, cryptographer Vanessa Teague... On why Australian laws are leaving consumers so vulnerable. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.